The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Thanksgiving has come and gone, and large gatherings have likely left more coronavirus cases in their wake. Dr. Scott Gottlieb. We're going to see a bump in new infections. There's no question about that. We've seen it after every holiday. And new cases or no, political strategist Frank Luntz says the key to curbing COVID might be in the power of rhetoric. There are certain words to use that will connect and encourage people to actually behave the way that they're supposed to. Bitcoin's wild ride to $19,000. The Winklevoss twins, two of the earliest crypto bulls, are betting that adventures on that new frontier have only just begun. We've just been hodling. $18,000 Bitcoin, it's it's a hold, or at least if you don't have any, it's, it's a buy opportunity because we think there's a 25X from here. Plus, DoorDash is lining up for its IPO, but it isn't that particular weight that has our Joe Kernan concerned. I said, start getting these fries. I said, start getting them from DoorDash. But I don't know, I like them where they make them. And then I get home within five minutes and they're still hot. It's Monday, November 30th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Joe Kernan, who is back from a uh, much-deserved vacation, and Melissa Lee. A happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Uh, Becky is uh, off today. We are just weeks away. Uh, from seeing millions of doses of the COVID-19 vaccine start making its way to patients across the globe, just crossing the wires. Vaccine maker Novavax saying uh, it has pushed back the start of a U.S.-based late-stage trial for its experimental COVID-19 vaccine. It is now expected to begin in uh, the coming weeks instead of November. But we'll focus on some of the others that are much closer. Joining us now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, he's former FDA commissioner, CNBC contributor. He also sits on the boards of Illumina and Pfizer. And his latest Wall Street Journal op-ed discusses the complexities of the COVID vaccine after we start rolling it out and FDA approval. We've got to make sure, uh, doctor, about the second dose, got to monitor that, make sure people complete the, the regimen. Uh, and I would imagine... Um, we need to know, as you point out in your op-ed, whether people are contagious uh, or not, whether, whether we can count on the vaccine to have a, a, a beneficial effect on the spread. In addition to, to protecting from the worst symptoms, does it make someone less contagious? Do you know? Right. And you, we've talked about this on the show. You've asked me about this before. We don't know the answer to that question. We don't know whether or not the vaccine just prevents signs and symptoms of COVID, which is what the trial demonstrated. People didn't get symptomatic COVID disease. Or is it also preventing some infections and making people less likely to spread the infection? Now, we assume that it's also probably preventing some infections. And we also assume from some of the primate studies that we did with vaccines from these mRNA vaccines and vaccines more broadly, that it gives you what we call a, a non-sterilizing mucosal immunity which basically means you have immunity at the site of the membranes where you'd be likely to shed the virus, like in your lungs or in your nose. And so you're less likely to shed the virus after vaccination. But these things need to be demonstrated. And the way we're going to prove this, by and large, is with post-market data by following people who've been vaccinated and seeing if they're less likely to spread the infection or get infected in the first place. There is going to be some data coming out of the clinical trials to answer this question. 
Um, the manufacturers are looking at whether or not people who get vaccinated develop antibodies to other parts of the virus besides the part of the virus that the vaccine is designed to stimulate antibodies against. So the vaccine is designed to stimulate antibodies against the spike protein. But if you look at people's blood who got vaccinated and you see antibodies against other parts of the virus, like the nucleocapsid protein, that's an indication that they got infected and they just didn't get symptomatic. So there are ways to tell from the clinical trial data, but by and large, it's going to be the post-market data that we monitor to try to answer these questions definitively. Dr. I want to talk a little bit about the side effects, and I'm reticent to even talk about the side effects because I think it's so important that people ultimately, hopefully, uh, take this vaccine. But I've talked to a number of doctors over the past week, including someone who runs a hospital, uh, because they they are going to have frontline workers hopefully get access to the vaccine early. They're thinking about how are they going to distribute that vaccine even inside the hospital because so many have talked about at least short-term side effects of fever and chills and the like, and potentially not being able to work for a day or two. So the idea, for example, of giving everybody at the hospital, everybody in an emergency room, uh, uh, the doctors there, this vaccine on the same day becomes a problem. There becomes a staggering issue of how do you do it if there are going to be short-term effects. The other issue, apparently, is that during these tests, uh, I'm sorry, during the vaccine trials, a number of people who've gotten fevers and such have then decided that they need to get COVID tests because they're worried that maybe they actually did get COVID during this period. A number of people will be getting multiple COVID tests. And so all of a sudden you're going to have new strain on the system. How much have you heard about that? Look, if you look at the overall, we're going to have the detailed data on the safety profile and the side effect profile of these vaccines um, as that data becomes available from the um, advisory committees. And also the companies have committed to publish this data in a a peer-reviewed publication. So we're going to have a good sense of what the overall incidence is. Um, you know, it's reasonable numbers. It's manageable numbers in terms of the number of people who actually have low-grade fevers and rashes. It's not everyone, but there is a component of people who do, uh, and, and that's going to be made public. I, I actually am not sure of the detailed data myself. What I have access to is the same top-line data that you've seen. Um, but, you know, that is, that is a valid question of whether or not, you know, if you have people working in the same environment, you want to stagger the um, you know, the inoculations to make sure that you don't have multiple people developing side effects all at the same time. I don't think that this is going to be hard for the hospitals to work through because the reality is they're not going to be able to vaccinate everyone on the same day anyway. They're probably going to space these out over the course of a week. And most of these side effects, when people do have a minor immune reaction to the vaccine, it's pretty self-limiting. You know, it's a day or two of a rash or low-grade fever that we're seeing. I think people are going to be motivated to get vaccinated. The people who will be eligible to get vaccinated will be motivated to get vaccinated because they're going to generally be people who are at higher risk of either contracting COVID or having a bad outcome from it. And and final point on this, remember by the time we get into 2021, we're gonna have a lot more data around this vaccine because the clinical trials will be longer term at that point and they'll have fully read out. We'll have people who were in that first tranche who got vaccinated. And we'll also have a lot of people in the country who've been infected. Um, We're gonna probably have by the end of this year, 30% of the US population infected. You look at states like North Dakota and South Dakota, it's probably 30%, 35%, maybe as high as 50% right now. And so you combine a lot of infection around the country with vaccinating 20 percent of the population, you're getting to levels where this virus is not going to circulate as readily uh, once you get to those kinds of levels of prior immunity. Dr. Gottlieb, I want to get to a point that you raise in your op-ed, and that is tracking uh, once the vaccine has been distributed. There's a lot of talk right now about freezers and who's got the right refrigerators, et cetera. But after people get injected, how important a piece is that tracking part? And should technology companies actually be part of Operation Warp Speed, not just supermarkets and, and drugstore chains? 
It's very important, and we need to start thinking about it. I'm not sure all the tools and the, the procedures are in place to collect that information um, rigorously and, and vigorously. Uh, the, actually, the, the chain store, drug stores like CVS are doing a good job of putting in place systems to do that kind of tracking. And initially, I think we're going to be able to do it if the people who we vaccinate are an elderly population because they're going to be insured through Medicare. Medicare is putting in place some procedures to monitor people who get vaccinated and make that information available to health plans and providers so they could follow up on it. But once we get beyond that population, that kind of tracking is going to be more difficult. Because remember, people are going to be getting vaccinated at non-traditional sites. They'll be going to special vaccination sites away from their health plans, away from their providers. So somehow that information about where they got vaccinated, what they got, which vaccine they got, has to get back to their primary care providers and their health plans. And their health plans and primary care providers need to have systems in place now to monitor them and report that information in sort of an anonymized fashion to some kind of database that will aggregate all of that information across the population. That system that I just described is not in place right now, and we need to, we need to put that fully in place to do this kind of post-market monitoring. It's going to be very important to getting back to Andrew's point about assuring the public that these vaccines are fully safe and effective. That kind of information, I think, is going to be hopefully very reassuring. We need to make sure we report on it. So, Doctor, uh, this was, you know, this was a tough time for for everyone to be getting together for Thanksgiving based on what we the incidents and infection rates we were already seeing. So there's some talk of a surge on the surge. uh, And and I'm wondering when we'll know about that, whether whether you think that behavior was moderated so that people at risk definitely didn't go over relatives' houses. And, and maybe it's if there was, uh, you know, social gatherings that uh, maybe it, it would be people not as, uh, as vulnerable. But you would still think that we would see an increased incidence, which is weird because it, be, uh, it could be coincident with the time the vaccine starts rolling out, uh, hopefully, that, that's, that's in the near future. Will we see a surge on a surge? Well, we're going to see a bump in new infections. There's no question about that. We've seen that after every holiday. Now, we were seeing declines in in the rate of new infections in the Midwest in particular um, going into this holiday. And whether or not we continue to see that just because the virus is burning itself out in that part of the country, or we see sort of a leveling off because of the increased social interactions around the holiday, or we see a bump up is unclear. Uh, My guess is that what we're going to see is sort of a plateauing of infections in those parts of the country before they start to decline again because of the effect of the holiday. But they were they were starting to decline, you know, relatively aggressively because of the infections just burning itself out in some parts of the country like the Midwest. All right. All right. Uh, We have no time. I want to ask you about tryptophan and and whether a food coma uh, is real. Uh, If I actually fall asleep at the the table, if I eat, we don't have time. Uh, thank you, doctor. Uh, we don't have time for that. I'm glad but, we ran um, out of time. <laughs> I, I, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. And to complement uh, the hopeful news on the vaccine front, our next guest says that uh, changing the way we talk about COVID-19 may lead to less political division. Joining us right now is pollster and political strategist Frank Luntz. What do you mean by that, Frank? Well, there are certain words to use that will that will um, connect and encourage people to actually behave the way that they're supposed to. We did a study last week with the de Beaumont Foundation, and what we found that there are certain words, certain phrases that get people to act, and I'll give you a couple examples of them. If you talk about the pandemic, then listeners and viewers take it seriously. If you just call it the coronavirus, it's something that doesn't impact them. If you talk about eliminating or eradicating the virus, 
You're actually doing what the public wants you to do. This insistence on using warlike language really turns some voters off and gets them to ignore what's being said, and it's being done by the president and by some governors. Another example is that the emphasis on the speed of the vaccine development is a mistake. Yes, you get political credit for it, but what the public really wants is something to be safe and effective. And so the fact that they've used warp speed to get to it actually undermines people willing to take the vaccine. And one more example, when you emphasize government health agencies, you're emphasizing what the public doesn't want about health, which is bureaucrats and, and um, paperwork and a slow bureaucracy that doesn't solve the problem. Public health agencies communicates that it's about them, about their needs, and frankly, about their safety. So there are examples that are just like this. And I would urge uh, governors and business people to use the right language. Frank, how, you know, given how politicized masks have been, do you see a distinction between uh, those you've polled who've, who think about the context of putting on a mask and taking a vaccine? Yes, and it, this is a tragedy, and it makes no sense to me that if you're wearing a mask, people assume that you're a Biden supporter. If you're not wearing a mask, they assume you're a Trump supporter. This is insane. This is the most ridiculous behavior that I've probably seen in politics in more than a decade. You wear a mask if you're out in public. You wear a mask if you're within uh, uh, too close to other individuals. And it should not have anything to do with politics. And frankly, Andrew, it's, it's annoying, but it's actually unsafe for people that they've now so politicized it that your behavior is determined more by your politics than by your own commitment to personal safety. But, but Frank, as, as we move forward with hopefully a vaccine, what I'm asking is from, from those that you've polled, those that are refusing to wear a mask, would they also refuse to, to take the vaccine? Or is, it, or is it considered differently? Well, here's the amazing thing, that Republicans love the speed of the development of the vaccine but they're less likely to take it. Democrats are more hostile, more nervous about the, about the vaccine, but they're more likely to take it. Our language, our what the De, uh, De Beaumont Foundation found, is that the way you communicate this, even something like a lockdown, Andrew, a lockdown will be hated by Republicans, but a stay-at-home uh, protocol will be supported. Simply changing the words actually changes the compliance and changes our commitment to personal and public safety. Frank, in terms, in terms of, of, of persuading people to take the vaccine, our public and private workplace is going to effectively require people to take the vaccine. Do you think that, that effectively we'll be able to get 70 to 75% of the country on a persuadable basis, or are you going to have to do things where either require employees to, to, to take uh, the vaccine or potentially Businesses like airlines, movie theaters, restaurants and the like would have to require uh, you having a passport effectively that demonstrates that you've taken the vaccine to get on the plane to try to instill the kind of confidence to get that business back. So you've used the word require and you should be using the word protocol. If these are protocols and they're public health protocols, people will take the vaccine. If you call them government requirements, they won't. And I know this sounds crazy. I know that your, that your viewers are going, what the hell? But that's the way it is. And so you accept it. If you're going to make it sound like it's a government mandate, 
you're going to get 40, maybe even 50 percent who refuse to take it. But if it sounds like a government, proto uh, sorry, a, a, uh, a personal protocol, and if it, if it feels like you're making a decision not only to help yourself, but to help others around you, because what we found is that talking about the family is actually better than talking about the individual. Keeping your family safe is a higher priority to individuals than keeping yourself safe. If you use the right language, you'll get the same kind of uh, acquiescence that you're seeking. Right. Okay. Uh, Frank, always good to see you. Thank you for that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screenshot that and tweet it out. So hopefully business leaders and the like uh, can, uh, can, can use some of the terms uh, that you've been describing here. Appreciate uh, you joining us as always. Talk to you soon. Next on Squawk Pod, unpacking Bitcoin's wild ride to 19,000 with two of the earliest Bitcoin bulls, Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. The twins are founders of their own crypto exchange, Gemini. I'm not really worried about the, you know, the boogeyman of, of regulation. Bitcoin is the best performing asset of the previous decade. It's the best performing asset of this year. And we think it will be the best performing asset of the current decade. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee, who's in for Becky this morning. Um, and uh, hope everybody who took a long uh, Thanksgiving weekend uh, had a great one. Meantime, Melissa, our other favorite topic... <laughs> Bitcoin, that's been moving a lot, too. Maybe Joe's favorite topic, at least. Uh, Bitcoin, after recently hitting 16,000, we're seeing it recoup some of those uh, losses in recent days. It is up by almost 2% today, above 18,000, 18,540. Another institutional investor is taking a look. Guggenheim is reserving the right for its $5.3 billion macro opportunities fund to invest up to 10% in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is only invested in Bitcoin. And, of course, this follows many large investors including Paul Tudor Jones, Stanley Druckenmiller, who have voiced support for this uh, cryptocurrency, Joe. Yes, it, it has been getting a little traction. Interesting, um, interesting recent trading. And, and good to see you, Melissa and, and Andrew. And it's tough to come back from vacation. But, you know, having you here, Melissa, I don't know what it is. It just makes me feel very, very comfortable, happy, uh, almost ebullient. Um, My heart uh, is warm. To, to be here. Truly warm. Uh, what about you me? See the, he, he, <laughs> You too. What? You too. Uh, but I'm used to, I'm used Weber, to, I'm used to you. You know, I'm, uh, I'm used to you. Yeah, you're chuckling. I'm used to you. Uh, and it's good. It's good to see you too. I'm just, you know, trying to welcome someone who doesn't, you know, have to get yep. up at this god awful guest hour. in our house. And, and guest in our house. Yes. Hey, uh, Melissa, I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not following it that closely. I did see it get up, you know, pushing towards the, the old highs. And then there was like, Something happened. Do you know what, what, that there was some news out about that, but it dropped like three or four thousand dollars overnight or something. Yeah, but now it's come back. Well, I've seen you to know, some the, 
how similar the March was to record highs is similar to a few Thanksgivings ago, Joe, when we saw it, that initial record high, when that was the talk around the Thanksgiving Day. Remember that? It was Thanksgiving dinner yep. when grandmothers were asking their you know, grandsons and granddaughters about Bitcoin, <laughs> yeah. when all of a sudden everybody was opening up a, an account on Coinbase. And it was eerily similar to what we saw this time. It's not a surprise that we saw a little bit of a pullback, but with these large institutional investors coming in, these are the new whales. And, and the thing about the larger institutional investors is that they've got large wallets, they've got large positions, and they don't sell those positions. They're holding on to, to those big, right. uh, you know, stakes in Bitcoin and, and they're not moving. And so it's very, it's different in terms of the pace of trading and that momentum there. It looks like it's, it's, there's a little bit Melissa, more staying power here. Hey, Melissa, though, you know, the reason that it, it had dropped, Joe, while, while you were out was this was these this tweet uh, these tweets from Brian Armstrong from, from Coinbase who effectively said that there oh, uh, uh, who said that there's a rumor that the Treasury Department is going to start regulating right. what are called private wallets and there's going to be a know your customer uh, effectively regulation such that the Coinbase of the world and the big institutions are not going to be able to transact with private wallets and what that ultimately could do to, to undo it. I would have thought, actually, that that kind of regulation would ultimately make people trust Bitcoin even more and maybe give it some more support. But at least in the immediate aftermath of that, and clearly the position that Brian Armstrong is taking, is that that's not a good thing for Bitcoin. To counter that, though, well, I mean, the, we know the, that Gary Gensler is in contention to be added to the Biden administration. Gary Gensler is a friend of the cryptocurrency world. Um, he has taught courses on, on Bitcoin, on blockchain at MIT. So he's viewed as a positive. So it'll be interesting to see how this regulation shakes out in the end. But the, the operative word is regulation, yeah. and, and nobody knows it. The, the, the advocates say, yeah, you can, you can try, but it was built to, to try to avoid uh, regulation to some extent, but I don't know anything can be regulated, uh, it seems like. So I don't know how it plays out. It, it, you know, when you look into it a, more deeply, Melissa and Andrew, and it's, you know, we're already at how many have been mined out of the 21 million. We're, we're at like 90 percent, but the last one doesn't get mined till till I hope I'm around to see it, 2140 or something. And, and you know, the, the way that it's written, the code, the way that it was set up, uh, means that there can only be 21 million unless code has changed at, at some point of it, it, it or, or if it's something was modified. So it, it's it's concrete and cast in stone, but it's not concrete and cast in stone. So uh, it is the new frontier. But when you hear advocates come on, some of the ones that are exciting, like Paul Tudor Jones, what did he say? It was like the first inning or something of of being in Apple or so he said, you know, they get very infl- uh, hyperbolic and uh Excited, and they're getting excited at nineteen thousand. So I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know where they were at at, at nineteen dollars, but um, I don't know. How does anyone? A very speculative, and you better strap yourself in. I would think if you decide to look at it at these levels, wouldn't you think, Melissa, Andrew? Not a forecaster, Joe. Not a forecaster. But to the point no, about supply, it is more. Even if it can be changed, it is more fixed than monetary supply these days. That's for sure. Right. And well, that's uh, always the backdrop mm-hmm. is what the rest of Good what we're point. doing and then the pandemic, right. on, you know, top of everything else with stimulus. If it's only if it really is only 21 million, um, some crazy math you can in the Winklevi, uh definitely uh, do some crazy math. And, and hopefully we can ask. And they were there. Anyway, how, now, now to U.S. Yep. As the team mentioned, you're about to hear from Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, a.k.a. the Winklevi. 
aka the Bitcoin billionaire brothers of the social network fame. Before we get to that interview, here's some background on the twins. The brothers were among the first adopters of cryptocurrency, buying $11 million worth back in 2013 and eventually starting their own crypto exchange, Gemini. Very funny, guys. Gemini is a regulated digital currency exchange, wallet, and custodian with over 300 employees around the world. It's a New York trust company regulated by the New York State Department of Financial Services, and it's partnered with the likes of Samsung and State Street. It even has banking relationships with JP Morgan and works closely with Wall Street players like Deloitte and Marsh McLennan. The twins have stood by the crypto wave despite its crash in 2017 and the volatile swings ever since, and they're not about to change their position now. In August, the two penned an essay making the case for a $500,000 Bitcoin and claiming that this currency is the only long-term protection against inflation. Seema Modi, CNBC's global markets reporter, brought the Winklevi to Squawk Box this morning. Here's Joe. Seema, take it away. We have a uh, double trouble. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. I'd like to welcome Tyler and Cameron Wilkenvoss uh, on CNBC. It's great to see you both today. Thanks, Seema. Thanks for having us. Founders of Gemini, a cryptocurrency exchange. Both of you are significant holders of Bitcoin, buying a significant amount back in 2013. Tyler, I'll I'll start with you. What have you been doing over the last eight months to accommodate this meteoric rise we've seen in Bitcoin? And have you been personally doubling down on your investment in Bitcoin? So we've just been hodling. Um, Our thesis is that Bitcoin is gold 2.0, that it will disrupt gold. And if it does that, it has to have a market cap of nine trillion. Um, so we think that price is Bitcoin at it could price one day at five hundred thousand dollars a Bitcoin. So at eighteen thousand dollar Bitcoin, it's it's a hold or at least if you don't have any, it's it's a buy opportunity because we think there's a twenty five x from here. You know, five hundred thousand within the next decade. That means that Bitcoin would appreciate about forty five times from where it is right now. If I'm doing the math correctly, uh, Cameron, worth around nine trillion dollars. I mean, so basically, you're saying that Bitcoin could be about 40% of the market cap of the S&P 500. I mean, what takes us there? What's the, what's the bull case? I think a lot of it is just investors uh, coming in and realizing that inflation, there's a specter of inflation out there, and that um, how do you protect against that? Because I think there's not much of a debate on all the debt that's increased um, in the U.S., the money printing, and so how do you defend against that? And I think a lot of people are starting to realize that Bitcoin is really the best defense and offers the opportunity for an asymmetric return of something like 25 to 40x from here. And I don't think there's an asset in the universe that can credibly offer that kind of potential and protect against inflation. Gold's the classic hedge. If this was the 1970s, we would probably be buying and holding gold. But uh, today we have Bitcoin. With that said, Tyler, it's still a significantly volatile, speculative asset. And comments from Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong just a couple days ago sent Bitcoin lower by back to 16,000. Uh, concerns that he's hearing further regulation is coming from the Treasury Department, steps to increase data collection around digital wallets. Uh, what kind of impact could, could that have? Well, look, Bitcoin is still the best performing asset of the year, even compared to equities. Um, Look, back in 2013, there was a question if if Bitcoin was going to be outlawed. We're way past that. So we believe in in healthy, thoughtful regulation. And that's been the case in the U.S. and many other jurisdictions for the last decade. Um, We don't see that uh, not continuing. So we think Bitcoin's here to say we think thoughtful regulation around it in the U.S. and other sophisticated 
um, jurisdictions is also here to say. So we're, we're not, I'm not really worried about the, you know, the boogeyman of, of regulation. That was, that was a conversation that we got past like five or eight years ago, but, um, you know, Bitcoin is still, it's still been, it was a lot, it's the best performing asset of the previous decade. It's the best performing asset of this year. And we think it will be the best performing asset of the current decade. Hey guys, uh, question for you. Uh, when you really look at this chart, the biggest move obviously came this sort of September, October, and that happened after PayPal uh, effectively announced that as part of their digital wallets, they were going to be able to, people would be able to effectively transact in Bitcoin. I shouldn't say they're transacting in Bitcoin, but because the Bitcoin effectively gets turned into to, to fiat money. My question to you is, you've talked about it as digital gold. How much of it has to become a current, an actual currency, if you will, uh, to get to the numbers you're talking about, whether it's uh, half a million dollars of Bitcoin or more? So we think that um, Bitcoin's really an emergent store of value. And so it doesn't really need to be a great medium of exchange. Um, it just needs to be better than gold. And it's better across the board. So Bitcoin, the supply is fixed at 21 million. Gold is scarce. Bitcoin software, it can be sent through the internet like email. Gold is hardware. Um, it's hard to, to transport. Um, so really, I think the, the Bitcoin gold story, it's pretty clear winner. And we think that's going to play out dramatically over the next decade. Tyler. Right. And no one, no one uses Bitcoin. Sorry, no one uses uh, gold to buy coffee um, and as a nine trillion market cap. So if Bitcoin just is a better sort of value. Um, that still, you know, gets us to 500,000 Bitcoin conservatively. If it also can be used as a currency, which isn't off the table, then um, it's even higher. Although that use case certainly hasn't been proven as of yet. Uh, with that said, on the topic of Treasury, uh, Tyler, it is widely expected that Janet Yellen will be the next Treasury Secretary, uh, the former Fed chair. I went back and looked at some of the comments she's made about Bitcoin when she was the the Fed, head of the Fed. And she said in 2018, quote, I'm not a fan before that, saying it's not a stable store of value. How do you make Bitcoin mainstream when those who will be architecting important policy around cryptocurrencies, regulating this asset, uh, are clearly not supportive of it? Well, you know, we're happy to educate and have a conversation. Maybe we should reach out to Janet Yellen and talk to her. But um, look, when you see the likes of Paul Tudor Jones, Stan Druckenmiller, buying Bitcoin and extolling its virtues. When you see companies like Square, MicroStrategy that are publicly traded, putting their treasury into Bitcoin to protect their valuation um, because cash is trash and they've realized it, um, you know, that stuff does a lot to mainstream. And at some point, it's just hard to look at that data, those data points and deny that Bitcoin is an incredible technology, but it's also an incredible store of value. Cameron? Yeah, I mean, look, Bitcoin's um, this alternative non-sovereign store of value, emergent store of value. And I think that, um, you know, education is important. We're regulated as a New York tr trust company at Gemini. Um, we've been, you know, live for five years and we're just trying to make it super simple and easy for people to buy Bitcoin. And not everybody gets it, but the people getting it today is dramatically different than even six months ago. Uh, before the pandemic. So it's really encouraging to see that. Um, and we'll just see where it goes. Well, it's been a fascinating story to watch. And we appreciate both of you joining us today to bring us your insight and what you're seeing as early investors uh, and, and certainly vocal about it early on. Tyler and Cameron, we'll leave the conversation there. Thank you for joining us today.
Coming up on Squawk Pod, DoorDash taking its case to investors ahead of a planned IPO. But not everyone values food delivery in quite the same way. Melissa, where have you been? What are you doing? Not to Wendy's, apparently. I don't know why I'm getting flack for not going to Wendy's. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. You're listening to Squawk Pod today with Joe Kernan, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Melissa Lee. Here's Andrew. Two high-profile IPOs to talk about this week uh, that are on our watch. DoorDash expected to begin its roadshow today with reports saying it will target a valuation of about $25 billion to $28 billion. Meantime, we're hearing that Airbnb is set to launch its roadshow tomorrow with a valuation expected around $30 billion to $33 billion dollars. So we will see whether December is the month for IPOs uh, and all of these. Uh, I don't, we, they're not really stay-at-home. But DoorDash is a stay-at-home stock. I don't know uh, what we think of Airbnb these days, Melissa. I mean, it seems like DoorDash is a perfect time to go public, right, Joe? I mean, you couldn't ask for a better time in terms of the context of the world <laughs> to go public than right now during a pandemic. I've been told uh, that I shouldn't complain. I should just, instead of me going to Wendy's, I should just, instead, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. So I should start getting these fries that I get from my son. I should start getting them from DoorDash. But I don't know. I like them. I like them where they make them. And then I get home within five minutes and they're still hot or else they're not, they're not, quite, as, uh, they're not quite as good. So I don't know, uh, Melissa. <laughs> I, I, have you tried to, to go in? To, I mean, every, on, there's a board. To a Wendy's? And you can see, I go to a kiosk. I don't even know yeah, where there's a Wendy's. I go to a kiosk. Oh, okay. Anyway, so I, that's, that's scary. Anyway, uh, I go, and there's a board. It shows where I am after I do go to the kiosk. And now I'm usually on, like, the third page. And every single one of them says mobile or mobile. or They're all DoorDash up there. And I watch these, these shopping cart bags filled up with stuff. While I'm waiting for my piddly little uh, two fries, it, do you it makes use your real so name? Does should... it say Joe Kernan on the third board waiting says for Joseph, your fries? It, it, it's a, not my last name. It says Joseph. It depends on the credit card you put into the kiosk. Uh, the oh. name on the credit card. You would know these things. You're like George H.W. Uh, Bush at the. Whoa! Look at that. They just scanned that thing, and the price comes up. This is unbelievable. Now, do you? Uh, can I pay with cash? I mean, Melissa, where have you been? What are you? What do you not mean to you Wendy's, don't know where apparently. Wendy's is. I don't know why I'm getting flack for not going to Wendy's. Melissa's living in the future. Melissa's living in the future. Anyway. She is. She's it. You are. All right. You get okay. your shoes in the mail and everything. Everything in the mail. Everything uh, delivered. <laughs> okay. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Melissa Lee for sitting in today. 
On TV, tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. But to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.